Welcome, everybody, to another Bangers and Classics podcast. Um, we're still going, limping along with me, James Ruppert, and him, David Malloy. And uh, where's David been and what's he been up to? Well, for some of the week, I've been in limp home mode. Um, All right. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a busy old week. Finally finished the new book, uh, The Ultimate Classic Car Quiz Book 2, which is part quiz book, part narrative book. It's a, it's a hybrid book. It's now available on Amazon and 25% of the royalties go to charity. Uh, front cover is worth the price in its own, I reckon. It's by a guy called Russell Wallace, who's a very talented illustrator. So yeah, there's been that. I've had more fun and games with the Jeep, which I won't go into because it would take too long. But suffice it to say that I've now got arms like Popeye after the spinach. Yeah. So that's that. Um, what, oh, God, I've got some car spots for you. Oh, good. Yes. I was driving through Glasgow, uh, south side of Glasgow last weekend. Uh, and on the way back, happened to glance at what had been or sometime a forecourt. And on it sat a white Porsche 924 with its headlamps up. It was stationary. I don't know if the lamps, uh, if the mechanism wasn't working uh, or whatever, but the lamps were up, but they weren't illuminated. However, it was there. Um, not a 924S. This is one of the original 924s. So I saw that. But a little while later, uh, and I saw it twice once in another direction that actually passed me uh, on the second occasion, was a rather beautiful and very rare car, a TVR 350C in a lovely shade of blue. And it looked in absolutely stonking condition, James. It wasn't being ragged or hooned. It was mm. being driven very sensibly, very appropriately to the conditions. But it was actually, it was a sight for sore eyes. I really appreciated seeing that. So whoever owns it, thank you for taking it out for a spin and not the finest of weather and brightening up a rather somber day. And there was one more. Mm. Um, there's a hat trick of classic car spots this week. I spotted this one before and it was much the same place. Well, it's in the same place, but not exactly the same location. It certainly moved from one location to another. It's... Um, it's a Lancia Delta Integrale 8 valve, and it's a house adjacent to where we buy animal feed. And it's a sort of burgundy colour. I don't know the official Lancia colour for it, I have to say, but it's clearly being moved, and I presume it's being used on the roads. So that's jolly good as well. So three fine cars, all sporting cars, seen in this course of a couple of days. I was well chuffed with that. Well, well done to you, David. That's, um, uh, yeah, you've, got, um, you, you, you've won the spots of this week, uh, quite clearly. Um, a bit of good news at my end, David, uh, uh, battery troubles, um, seem to have been solved in that. Yeah, I do have a, uh, an unwell battery and, uh, let that be a lesson to all you people considering buying an EV. You never know your batteries could go, but obviously this is an old lead acid job. Uh, but the company's been very good and uh, they're posting me a new one and I just have to post the dead one back. So right. there you go. What about, the, what about the one for the Land Rover? <laughs> I mean, that's you sort of. <laughs> Well, there you go, David. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, I, I will look forward to uh, seeing that. Um, apparently it's coming on Monday. Apart from that, I, I saw a Saab 900 convertible, which I used to see a lot of. But um, mm. uh, that was quite uh, uh, an interesting spot, really. It was uh, hood up, but um, it was still nice to see because uh, it's one of those cars that you used to see everywhere. And now you don't see anywhere, pretty much. Um, so that was good. And there was a spot from a few weeks ago where I, I basically saw a Land Rover Speedster and uh, I was driving at the time. And I so I couldn't spend a lot of time looking at it, but it did look like um, uh, an 80, very short wheelbase, but uh, it had no cab. It had no uh, windscreen or anything. Uh, and also the 
uh, paintwork had been you know rubbed rubbed back to um, the lightweight stainless steel. So it was it was it was quite an interesting sight. So mm. I would have liked to have doubled. But I was unfortunately I was going somewhere, I had to do something. But uh, it would have been nice to find out a bit more about that. What uh, what the chap was doing with it. But he was he, he was actually in in a field with it. So it wasn't just a spot on the road. He was actually in a field. So. Um, I, I might have to go back to that field uh, to see if he's maybe still stuck there. Um, right. But that, but that's it for me this week. Yeah, it's funny you mention a cylindrical convertible. Mm. I know a story about that, and I don't think I can tell it on the podcast. Mm. I'll tell it to you during the week, and you can come back to me and tell me if you think it's appropriate or not. Uh, uh, okay. I would, I would have to, uh, shall we say, redact certain names from it. Yeah, um, for reasons that will become abundantly clear. It's in the same category as a story about white Ford Escort XR3i convertible. I'll also tell you, I wasn't present on either occasion. Uh, I know of some of the people involved, but I am led to believe these are true stories. Anyway, moving on from that, James, um, yeah. I need to pay tribute this week to uh, one of the greats of motoring journalism and indeed a very fine racing driver. Uh, well, he's, he is uh, quite quite simply one of the greats of driving. Really, you know, he 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 really was. Um, and also, he was an extremely nice chap. Um, I did meet him a few times. He was also an extremely tall chap, as you pointed out to me. Mm. Uh, but but Tony Dron was yes uh, a, a a very very nice chap. So I mean, all I can remember about him is that he just he, he smiled. I mean, we did we we did talk, but he was just he was just a very jovial, very pleasant um uh, chap and also a very modest one because uh, he could have he could have really thrown his weight around because um compared to most of us um he could drive cars mag- magnificently mm. and uh, yeah he, he, he and he excelled in many formulas and i think he won many hundreds of races um and he was a works driver uh, and it yes. takes you back to the days when uh, people who wrote for car magazines were qualified to do something and yeah. uh, he's one of those and he's also was a fellow car salesman he did sell Saabs and Porsches roughly around the same time as me oddly enough um, yeah. before he went sort of full-time but that also proves that um, uh, racing cars uh, didn't didn't really pay the bills you had to go and do something else <laughs> you know you, no. you really did have to uh, go and earn a living uh, but no we're, we're very very sorry to hear it and uh, 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 all our sympathies to the family but what a life lived you know that's the that's the way to do it yes indeed i mean if, for those who don't know who tony drone was and one or two of you may not be so familiar with him uh tony drone wrote for motor magazine initially and he wrote very well for motor magazine but he wasn't just comfortable behind the typewriter he was very comfortable behind the wheel of a racing car he drove in formula three and unfortunately uh, in 1976 he was lumbered with the triumph engine um, Triumph Engine March, Formula 3, and nobody could really do anything with it over a few years. And, of course, Tony Drone was six foot five, so single-seater racing cars weren't really designed for a guy of his height. Mm. However, the next couple of years, he drove in what is now the British Touring Car Championship and was then the British Saloon Car Championship, and he drove a Unipart-sponsored Triumph Dolomite Sprint. He tied in points for the overall title in 1977, I believe, and he only lost it in countback. Now, in those days, the championship was run in classes. There were four classes. His car ran in Class C, which was the second you know, second top class. They were measured by engine size. And the chap who won it was in a lower class, which I probably preferred a little bit less competition. But John's mastery of the Dolomite Sprint was such that he often beat, for outright race wins, the cars in Class D, the 3-litre Caprice, and his 2-litre Dolomite Sprint. Uh, that is no mean feat. That in itself speaks volumes about his ability as a driver. He then went on, as James says, to sell cars, and I think he was the first editor of Thoroughbred and Classic Cars magazine. Yeah, I think that's correct, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I never met Tony Drawn. Um, I always enjoyed his writing, and I remember reading about his exploits behind uh, the wheel of racing cars, and I always thought, you know, what a talented guy. And, you know, again, as you say, James, we're much saddened by his passing. Well said, David. Well, it's the truth, you know. <laughs> what, it's the truth. What can we say? No. Um, and I think the only other thing we wanted to mention, uh, which does, which has come up in our conversations uh, recently, has been the Morris Minor Centre. And of course. Uh, it does. It does seem that the uh, it's not the parts side and it's not the sales side, but the but the restoration side um, is going into liquidation. There has been an announcement this week, um, which is sort of very very sad, really. Um, mm. But I think it's a reflection of one of those uh, things that actually restoring a car properly, um, as opposed to just slapping some paint on it, um, is a very expensive business. And uh, getting people to pay the requisite amount to you know make a car properly roadworthy um, probably proved too much. They did cite obviously the problems in the last few years, um, but um, it, you know it is a it is very very sad when the you know the whole point of a Morris Minor and Charles Ware was to make the point that um you know a morris minor is basically the only car that you will ever need and uh, you can make it last many ge- ge- you know ge- generations hence so um it's a shame about that but uh, at least you can still get parts from them because they do make original parts yeah. uh, in sri lanka i mean that sense has been going how long uh but 30 years james 30 yeah years? i think seven well yeah i think it's from 1976 i think it that's oh, is it? It's a very oh, yeah. yeah i think it's a very very long time and uh yeah i i mean i have been there and it was amazing to see how many miners that they had um actually in stock and in bits and pieces and so forth but uh uh it's just a shame that um you know a certain aspect of that business doesn't seem to make any financial sense anymore yeah. which is such a shame I think the problem is that people are restoring cars and then looking to sell them. Mm. And the cost of restoring them, you know, doesn't reflect in the sale price. And for many cars, for some, of course, it does. Yeah. But things like a Morris Minor, it's just not going to. And unfortunately, I think that's the way things are. But you're right, James. It's it's difficult news to take, really, because it's been in existence for such a long time mm. and done such a good job for so many years. But we wish them well with the continuation yeah. of the, the parts business. And I think on that note, we shall take a break. You're listening to Bangers and Classics, the official podcast of the festive season hangover. So welcome back after that break. And it's time for Banger or Classic. And I gave a bit of thought to this one this week, just for a change. And I came up with the Nissan Micra. Now, not the third generation, but I think we can concentrate on the first two generations, certainly the ones that I'm familiar with from here, James. What do you think to that? Um, well, I don't know, uh, really, David. It's uh, uh, I think it's a, a foregone conclusion, isn't it, about where we're going with this one? Um, <laughs> maybe no, a foregone. You told, you told me before. I mean, you've been traumatised by by one. So, well, yeah. I mean, well, what what happened? What happened was, as a certain comedian used to say, was that um, some years ago, my work used to take me down to various parts of England to do hearings. And my classic car at the time was a matrimony arena, but I wasn't going to drive it down to Birmingham or Nottingham and leave it lying around. So my everyday car had blown its engine and the road back from Liverpool one. So it was getting fixed. So while it was getting fixed, and it was, took quite a while, I had to rent cars. And I had a succession of okay cars. I had a Ford Fiesta. Back, this was about 1998 or 1999, I think. And Fiesta, yeah, it was fine. Fiat Punto, which I thought was very good. Volkswagen Pole, again, not too bad at all. And the last time, they gave me a Nissan Micra. And I thought, do I look like naughty or big ears? 
However, okay, fine. I've had these drive well. Um, I'll give it a chance. And I drove it back from Birmingham on the M6. And it was horrendous. It was no fun whatsoever. At one stage, I'd have been happier walking, I reckon. That's how bad it was. Now, it may be that I got a bad car. I don't know. But the experience was not a pleasant one, shall we say, James? Yeah. And it put me off them. Apart from the fact, as I say, they looked like naughty cars. This would be, I think, the second generation. Second generation that I'm familiar with anyway, because I didn't bother to research this. Because uh, my, verdict, my verdict was a <laughs> foregone conclusion. But we've had so many classes that we've got to chuck in a banger. And I'm sorry, Nissan fans. This, to me at least, is a banger. You may disagree, which is fine. What do you reckon, James? Oh, no, it is a banger. And uh, lots of people learn to drive in them. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, I'm too old and you're, you're too old because we learned to drive in Mod Model T Fords. But um, uh, there's a, there a whole <laughs> generation of people who learn to drive in them. So uh, they have a certain affection for them. Uh, I think I mentioned before the engines are used a lot by uh, grass trackers. They used to put them into minis and stuff like that. So, the, you know, the, the actual engine is very, very unbreakable. But actually, as a banger, uh, it, it is basically a five-star one um, because they will go on forever. You, you know, the, the rust will obviously always kill them eventually, but if it's, it is one of those cars you can buy for uh, a few hundred quid and it will just go on and on and on. Um, it'll probably become unroad, unroadworthy at some point, but it actually will still work. So mm. as a banger, uh, it deserves uh, all the accolades. Uh, uh, as a classic, it's, it's, I, don't, I think it's got some going before... Uh, it actually becomes a classic. Maybe when there's about three left, uh, we might uh, let one of them be a classic. <laughs> but, but I don't think I don't think it's going to end up uh, in a museum. But maybe it will do with a British School of Motoring sign on it. Yes, uh, I was going to say something really obnoxious here about them, but I'm yeah. not going to. Uh, yeah, I have to offer you a counterpoint, mm. uh, James. My wife had one long before I met her, and she likes them. Mm. She really thinks, oh, they were great little cars and. I'm staggered. You know, I, I really am staggered. What I want to know is, James, if we were to buy one of these cars and run it around as a banger, do you get a free naughty costume with it? Well, you could do. Well, yeah. I mean, it might be great for Christmas. People might mm. think you're an elf or something. You know, yeah. one, of, one of Santa's little helpers. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I, I'm sorry. It's just not doing it for me. Uh, and I did give it a try. So what, what else can I say? Banger, end of story. Mm. And, and I, I'm not even going to say a five-star banger. Yeah. <laughs> no, they are, they, they are reliable. I'll give them that. But if you ever wanted a car not to be reliable, that might be the one, guys. That might be the one. But there we have it. Anyways, shall we move on now to... Oh, what should we do next, James? More Christmas gifts for car nuts. Well, yeah, we could do, couldn't we? Yes. I was just thinking here. Um, mm. Skelestri. What mm. about Skelestri? Yeah, that's a good idea, isn't it? We never talk about it. No. Are you a Skeletrix fan as a, as a boy? Well, I um, I actually had something that wasn't Skeletrix. Uh, what was it? There was a there was a there was an Airfix version of Skeletrix. MRRC. Um, uh, I don't know what it was called, but that's what I had um, when I was uh, 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 a much younger man. Um, uh, I don't know whether I would presume Skeletrix was going at the same time, and maybe this was. Um, uh, two and six cheaper or something. I don't know. Um, Skeletric hadn't came out in the 60s, didn't it? Yeah. Well, this was definitely 60s because that's when I had uh, the Airfix. But whether they uh, looked at the Airfix and thought we can do better than that, uh, I don't know. But, uh, yes, yeah, slot car racing is um, 
one of those uh, great things. I, I once did a story for uh, Supercar Classics actually about slot car racers, and they had a massive, massive um, shed in North London, and it was the biggest, obviously, set oh, yeah. you'd ever yeah. seen. And it was, yeah. you know, it was a like it was like ten lane. It was it was ridiculous. It was, but it was the biggest thing ever. Uh, one of the coldest days of my life. There's no heating in there. I was absolutely <laughs> frozen stiff, but it was just amazing. And you, uh, and you have to be so so good to actually get around the circuit without falling off. It, it's so difficult to um, uh, do it properly, and you, mm. you actually get a you know a, an incredible respect for the people who, who spend an awful lot of time uh, doing it. Um, but mm. uh, yeah, it's a uh, uh, there's a lot more to it than you actually think, and obviously you can mm. you can still do it at uh, older ages and uh, get as much fun out of it, probably more than you did uh, as a youngster. Yeah, I mean, I think I've got that article, James. Have do you, you mention Do you mention Johnny Herbert in it? <laughs> no, no, seriously. He, I think he was, I think he was third in some sort of London Grand Prix as a as a teenager. Oh, uh, really? London Electric Grand Prix. Yeah, uh, I mean Johnny Herbert, the racing driver, obviously yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, well, I'm sure I, I, I thought you're being really sizes there, David. I was, no, I was no, 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 no. Um, I'm not going to say anything about that. No. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that sort of thing. Of course not. No, 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 not publicly anyway. <laughs> no, uh, Johnny Herbert did, I believe, um, he finished in a podium. He may have won it. Mm. A stock car. I'm not sure if it was your article because I'm pretty sure I've got that in an, an issue of Supercar Classics. I've got. I've certainly read it. Yeah. Oh, I haven't read it for years. I haven't read it since mm. I wrote it. So uh, yeah, well, that's what happens when you write something. You tend to never go back to it. No, that's right. to it. Yeah. yeah, but cars that are raced competitively in slot car racing are a world apart from electric cars. Um, a lot of these things have got custom-made bodies, etc. Uh, they're very expensive and they are hugely fast. Um, they are ridiculously fast, and it's the sort of thing you have to actually see to experience. You know, just how fast these things go and the level of control it takes. The level of practice it takes to get really good at it, as you say, James, it's great. Absolutely. But Scalectris can be great fun. And you can even play it on your own. Now, you're going to say, how are you going to do that? Well, what you do is, this is what I had to do. I'm the only child. I got a stopwatch. And I would set up Grand Prix weekends with various cars. And I'd maybe time them for three laps. That would be qualifying them for a race 10 laps. Uh, and if I spun off, I'd, you know, I stopped the race, started it again, and added three seconds or something onto the time. And that was it. So you can have a world of fun doing that. So you can actually even play it on your own if you've got no one to play it with. As was often the case with me. I told you before about mum tying sausages around my neck to get a dog to play with me. And that's kind of how it was. Absolutely. And strangely enough, I do have a I do have a reasonable story. And I would presume it would have been Scalectric. My dad uh, in the 60s used to do advertising and promotion and things. And it was involved with something to do with um, Jack Brabham and... Mm. Um, they were at Selfridges. They had a big um, Scalectrics type board set, set up. Um, I think he would have been world champion by then. And my dad said he was organising all of this. Obviously, it's you know like a complete nightmare because there's press there and all sorts of people. And but there was loads of um, school kids there playing. You know they actually let them uh, play with 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 the Scalectric. And then I said he you know he eventually had to get all of these controllers off these little kids because Jack Brabham was coming. And eventually he managed that. Um, and they'd been racing extremely well. And Jack Brabham uh, obviously fell off at the first corner because it's so <laughs> difficult to do. And he said it was the most embarrassing thing. Uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to know what it was a promotion for. My dad did tell me I'd forgotten it in the mists of time. 
Um, I don't think it was it was promoting scale electric. I cannot remember. It must have been something else. But he was probably endorsing some sort of products. But uh, uh, I think that proves that just because you can drive a car doesn't mean you can drive a scale electric. Yeah, I mean, quite often they had Grand Prix drivers and racing scale electrics, and I don't think they were terribly good at it. There's a world of a difference between saying a racing car and being handed the hand controller and saying, "Hey, drive this around yeah. uh, this track." It's a slightly different discipline, of course. Once they get used to it. I imagine with their reflexes and judgment, they'd be brilliant, but that wasn't really going to happen. I don't suppose we're no. too interested. Yes, so I think on that note, we shall take another break. Ah, this is the count. I just want to say that the two presenters of this podcast are even bigger pains in the neck than me. <laughs> so he joins us again after that short break. James and I were just discussing while the, the mics were off or the recording software was off. Uh, well, not as a sanity clause. It's a, it's a very appropriate topic of debate at this time of year. Yeah, probably better not go into that uh, too much. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about, James, in the context of mm. Christmas gifts for petrol heads. Um, well, I think we've mentioned before there was a new classic car magazine um, out this year called Classic Retro Modern, mm. and one thing I have noticed about them is that they do feature unusual cars in it. They go away from the mainstream and they find some interesting classics to talk about. Classics are perhaps a lesser known here. Uh, there are fewer of them, but they're nonetheless very interesting. Uh, it's good to see a magazine do that. So monthly magazine, the charge was at £5 a copy. You get, producing a magazine is very tough in this day and age. It's uh, it's not like the days of yore. So every subscriber, every sale they get, I'm sure they will be very grateful for. And they are good enough to merit getting plenty of those, I think. Yep, that's right. Go and get your copy. <laughs> Go and get your copy now. Yeah, now that James is walking up, that's it. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. Yeah. I have a more successful uh, mag- ma- ma- magazine than mine, so there you go. He was sleeping, he was sleeping <laughs> off the mulled, the mulled wine and the uh, mince pies. We upgraded the mince pies this week uh, from Lovely. last week, and he scoffed a lot again, I'm sorry yeah. to say. Um, he's eyeing up the Christmas decorations here. I don't know what he's going to do with them, so I'm, yeah. I'm quite concerned. Uh, once he's got a couple of glasses of mulled wine in them, even the alcohol-free stuff, yeah. Turns into a completely different person, you know. Anyway, we are not going to do another challenge this week. We didn't do it last week, so we're not going to do it this week. We're going to go back to last week's format, which is find a classic car, £10,000 budget, any car you like, just make it a good one, and we'll talk about that. And Mr. Upper, what have you found? Oh, right. Oh, it's me. Um, It's you. It's me, is it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they sprung that on you. Well, there you go. (laughs) I I do, David. I'm... uh, I'm like a broken record. I, uh, I, <laughs> I go down the same route. But it's very strange. I'm looking at cars which are for sale in the UK, and I'm, I'm quite bored by what I see. I'm not, I'm not excited. I'm not challenged. Uh, I'm not interested. Uh, but as soon as I go abroad, as soon as I um, you know, hop across the pond, as soon as I go continental, uh, there's a world of possibility. Mm. And uh, uh, the world of possibility this week um, is Fiat-shaped. And Ooh. I did find, yeah. Well, the thing was, um, I bet you love a Fiat 130. Um, mm-hmm. And I bet you like the ones which are, I bet you like the saloon. And uh, I bet you like a coupe. Um, mm-hmm. And these are about three, four thousand pounds. Now, it's important to either Google translate what's there uh, because uh, they are very solid looking cars. They are not completely rust rust free but you're paying around three to four thousand euros and you're thinking to yourself wow i can get a fiat 130 um you know uh, uh, you know 2.8 liter engine uh, in it uh, for you know 
just a few thousand pounds, but it, it will require some work. It is solid, it, you know, the, it is it is complete. And I also found a 130 coupe for a very similar price. And you just think to yourself, wow, <laughs> you know, they're so interesting. And, you know, again, it's they, these are cars you do not see, especially on our mm. roads. Um, yeah, cars but, in the glory days of fiat, yeah. Very, 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 very much so. But you, but it will require. And if you're into that, um, if you're into doing a bit of work and sourcing some parts, um, that might be just the thing. Just you know, buy a trailer, and uh, for not a great deal of money, uh, you can bring something back that uh, will um, interest and amuse and probably frustrate you. But um, uh, you know, I can think of worse things to do with your spare time. Yeah. Um, and effectively that's that's what i did a few years ago but the advantage was uh, it was all mini bits underneath so i knew that was going to be an easy bit if i needed something to actually make it work uh, but these might be a bit more of a challenge uh, so what i did was because I, I know you'd probably have a go at me um, and even though i'd have quite a lot of my budget left um yeah i did find a complete um in spain this time it's a fiat 850 coupe 1968 Ooh. And that was seven and a half thousand euros. And uh, yeah, it looks absolutely lovely. Uh, again, a, a car you do not see. Um, uh, yeah, a very lovely 60s, uh, you know, vehicle. It's, you know, uh, the sort of car that Fiat excelled at making. Um, and uh, I think it would be a joy to own. So, yeah, I just thought that was, um, you know, closer to the end of the budget. I'm not saving money. I'm not saving mythical money again uh, that I can invest in uh, cryptocurrency or anything. Um, I just wanted to spend as much of it as possible and um, have a little buffer at the end. But my point is with this, um, and it will probably, you know, in the continuing weeks that we do this, um, I'll probably just be abroad every time. I do apologise for that. But it's but it's worth looking further afield because you do see some very interesting cars. And that's it for me, David. Ooh, you better stay away from Transylvania, that's all I'm oh, saying. Right. No, I love being yeah. there. It's great. I know it's a bit rough for you, David, but, you know, some of us in here, XJS, um, had a nice time. Yeah, but I still ask you for that dishwasher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that's all about. I have no knowledge of this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What surprised me, James, is you went mm. from an Italian car two weeks in a row. I have. That's very true. I think it's your it's your effect. I think it's once I start going for French cars, everybody should worry and uh, unsubscribe from the postcards. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have <laughs> subscribers. Blimey. Poor souls. Um, I'm not going to say any more about that because uh, I'm just I'm just not. Uh, yes, well, there's lots to be said, of course. On your seven and a half thousand euros, James, you've got to remember mm. we've got to pay import duty nowadays. Oh, have we? Oh dear. Yeah, you're going to get stiffed for VAT, I reckon. Oh, right. it, uh, and of course, uh, yeah, got an MOT, etc. Here, but you know what? You can still buy cars in Europe that you can't get here, mm. and you can probably get them cheaper in many cases. Yeah, uh, as long as you're not my left hand drive, and you know, so what? Mm. If that's what, if that's what you won't get it. You know, life's too short, guys. Anyway, I did go to Europe as well for a little oh, while. Wow. Uh, didn't stay there, but I, oh. my first port of call, it was a bit too expensive because of once I worked out uh, bringing in um, import duty, etc. But I had a look at a 1983 Talbot Matra Mirena in Jean Mimosa, uh, uh, yellow Mimosa, or Mimosa Yellow even. Uh, this in Spain, 72,500 miles on the clock. Aftermarket alloys on it. It's got the less attractive brown interior. Uh, the later, it's a later Mirena because I can tell by the interior. Uh, it's a striped interior, but because of the colour, it's it's a brown stripe as opposed to the more desirable black stripe. However, it's a nice car, 2.2. The only fault I'd have is it's a standard engine and you really want one uh, with the extra power, uh, you know, the, either the ESC or the 142 kit models. 
uh, which do have a bit of extra room. But this one looks very nice at order indeed, and you can find it in Karen Classic. It's a nice looking example. The only thing, of course, is it's yellow. So in the summer, it's going to get covered in flies. That will happen. So taking my £10,000 budget, I thought, what can we go for? That's a little bit close to home. And I found something. And James is going to follow mm. this perch here because I went for a German car. All right. Yes. Mm. I found a Volkswagen Canado VR6 uh, near Leicester uh, for £9,500. Uh, it's a white one. It's uh, done about 139,000 miles. The odometer reads more because it was changed. They had to put a higher mileage one in it, apparently. <laughs> I look, yeah, uh, there were problems with the instrument binnacle, and they changed it for another binnacle and a higher mileage. And the MOT history certainly bears that out. It, you're not going to do 60,000 miles a year in one of these cars in 2020. It's just not going to happen. Mm. Uh, the condition of the car looks good. The seller gives a very good account of it. And he says it was uh, put in dry storage in 2005 and was purchased by him February 2019, been recommissioned. And certainly the MOT history, such as there is from 2019 to date, is very good. I think there was one fail and a couple of minor things and a couple of passes. So it's got current MOT, I think, to next summer from memory. And it's had lots of work done to it. It's had a uh, new timing chain, new clutch, tappets have been done. And the fuel tank has been dropped out and flushed. New fuel pump. So, yeah, it looks very good indeed. And apparently it's, there's no rust on it. It's been off the road for so long. It's got the lovely uh, narrow angle V6 engine, or the VR6 engine, if you want to call it that. And goes very well, handles very well, and looks good. The Corrado looked good from day one, and the styling still looks good more than 30 years later. So if you're interested in buying a 90s coupe, then that one should certainly be well up on your list and certainly have a look at it. I would, if I were in the market for one. Uh, you'll find it on Piston Heads, uh, if you're wondering. And uh, as I say, I would certainly direct you there to have a look and hopefully perhaps a purchase. So there we go. James has gone Italian. I've gone German. What will next week bring us? Maybe we'll go Japanese. Yeah, we could do. You see, 9,000 sounds like quite, quite, quite a lot of money. And then when you describe what's happened to it, you go, no, that's not at all, no. is it? Um, because well, you, couldn't, you couldn't buy uh, a contemporary coupe that would be half as much fun for anywhere near that. No, and prices of Carados have gone up. Mm. So having dealt with the, the challenge, James, let's jump into the time machine and head back to the 1970s. Now, I once wrote a piece called Death of the 1970s Snob, and I can't find it anywhere. And I'm really annoyed about that because I actually quite liked that one. Mm. Um, but that got me thinking, well, cars of the 1970s snobs. What car would a snob in the 1970s have? And I think the answers would suffice a lot of modern people. We're not talking about BMWs or Audis or Mercedes. Yes, some snobs would have those. But things like a Ford Cortina gear, that would be a car for a snob in the 70s, wouldn't you say, James? Yeah, it would. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it's what's called uh, marketing. And uh, it was very cleverly exploited uh, by uh, the people at Ford who were masters at it. Um, and it was, it was mainly car park snobbery, but that also extended to down the road snobbery as well, in that you wanted to have a better car than your neighbour at the time. Mm. So, yeah, if there was any, if there was any difference that uh, could be made by what was on the uh, on the lip of the uh, boot boot lid, um, you would go for it mm. if you could afford it. Yeah. Well, I mean, in those days, uh, having a GL specification over an L was a big thing mm. for a lot of people. I mean, the, the GL had a clock, for goodness mm. sake. The L didn't. And yeah. you really had to have that clock. So, yeah, I mean, things like a Ford Katina gear, uh, 
A Capri, what would you say would be a snobbish Capri, James? Would you see any of those being particularly snobbish? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you could get an awful lot of packs um, on uh, certainly the uh, earlier ones. Um, there was a whole, yeah, you, you could get, you know, uh, uh, an XL, uh, a GXL, couldn't you? A GLXL, XL. Um, a G, there was GT. There was there was actually an awful lot of it. I, th- I think I once wrote about how many possible combinations there were. It was it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, the uh, different packs, and then you could have an executive pack as well. Mm. Uh, I think with the uh, Capri and of uh, course, yes. the Cortina. So there was an awful lot of uh, uh, options, and it was an awful lot of fun. It made ordering a car. Um, you know, uh, people talk about specking a car now online. I, I don't really get very much out of that at all, really. But uh, uh, I'd rather look at a brochure. Oh, <laughs> god, yeah, assemble my car from a brochure. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, the executive pattern was a big thing, it yeah. actually continued even into the, the 90s. Yeah, I think it did. Uh, some, with some cars, or oh, the executive pack. I remember Matra, we talked about the Matra Marina. Mm. Uh, I'm sure the Matra Marina 1.6, there was an optional executive pack on it. Which, um, from memory, I think was tinted glass, electric windows, and alloy wheels. Yeah, you got one of those, and you were suddenly an executive. Brilliant. That's you know, right. You, yeah, probably got a free key to the executive toilet and the workplace as well. Well, you could have done. Um, yeah. When it when it came to French cars, David, because this is your angle, I think I I think there was a a business pack, wasn't there, for Renaults and stuff like that? I think they had going into the eighties and nineties. I can't remember. I can't remember either, to be honest. No. Well, I mean. There were, I wouldn't be the target market, let's be honest, yeah. <laughs> for, 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 for such like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, we'll not sell us to words or garbage. No, no, I don't want him getting the car. Other snobbish cars of the mm. 70s, James, might be things like Lancias. The Lancia Beta, for a time, had a certain cachet, as I recall it. Uh, more so than the German cars. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Also, when you look at 1970s programs, there's there's a colossal amount of uh, Lancias and um, uh, and certainly some of the Fiat's I mentioned, mm. uh, you know, like the 130. Yes, um, uh, people hadn't uh, switched entirely to German German cars by then. I would completely agree that uh, yeah, um, having a Lancia was um, uh, uh, quite a nice thing to have at the time. Mm. Oh, it still is. I mean, if, if yeah. it's an old Lancia, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I would I would go along with that. But, of course, things changed, as you say, and we moved away from that. But there were some really interesting cars back in time. You can look for them yourself. Have a look online and try and put yourself back in the minds of somebody from the 70s. Now, Christmas, obviously, is coming. It's a time for nostalgia. Wallow in it a little bit. Try to imagine you're back there and think about the kind of car you would have. And, of course, snobbery still exists. I mean, not just in cars. Also, as we discussed before, in walls. But we've already mentioned that one. I think on that note, I'll say thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast. Hope you tune in next time. Yeah, thanks for it, David. Yeah, and talking about the 1970s, uh, Caroline Munro's outside um, in a Triumph Stag, but we can talk about that next week. Oh, no, we can't. I think we have to talk about it this week. Forget what I just said. Well, you can't because I haven't, <laughs> I don't know uh, what she said to me yet. Oh, <laughs> no. I've no idea. And I even stayed up last night. And uh, right. yeah, but there you go. So right. um, well, uh, we'll have to investigate that, David. Yes. It's well, very important. As soon as we finish recording this, listeners, yeah. I'm going to be asking James a lot of questions about this. I completely forgot about it, and how could I? But now that he's reminded me, yeah. uh, I'm on the case. Yeah. See you she's next time. She's sounding the horn, David. I've got to go.